We're going to begin to rebuild um, a vision series. So we begin a new direction for the church and gain a new identity of our role as a church right here in the middle of this great city and what that looks like. How's that sound? All right. Sounds like a plan. Psalm 51. Do you got it? Clap if you got it. All right. I got to keep you loose out there. Summer Psalms is what we're calling it. By the way, you can go on our website. I, see, I, I don't see you all week. I've got so much to tell you. Um, you can go on our website and download this stuff. Martino's doing an awesome job putting video together. The hard part about video is that I've got to have a better wardrobe and can't wear the same thing every Sunday. That's, I'm actually being thrown off by that uh, a little bit. Uh, and I want you to know that we're actually working on a new website right now. Uh, Martino's uh, a big part of that. Uh, as well. So thank you, Martino. And uh, we'll be presenting some of this great stuff to you um, shortly. So this is the Summer Psalms. And I want to talk about the Summer Psalms because I believe the summer is a time of celebration. Um, the sun is out. Um, it was kind of funny. The sun is out here, but it's, it's kind of out. Um, it was 74 when we left here yesterday to go to the C.S. Lewis play in Walnut Creek. And within 25 minutes, it was 94 degrees. So it is like perpetual springtime here. But nonetheless, it's summer. And uh, I hope you're having a refreshing time during the summertime. Um, But what we've been saying week after week is that reality, guys, reality has a way of crashing in. And sometimes our celebration is often marred by our struggle. How many of you are with that? Um, We were walking the Golden Gate, which tells you I'm not yet a true resident. I'm still a tourist here. Uh, I'm in month four and a half or whatever it is, but I had to walk the Golden Gate and it's kind of like gang initiation. You go through these things and you become a resident and you're really from San Francisco. So I'm doing my bucket list, Um, but it was amazing. I'm walking across this amazing structure and I'm looking down at the water and I'm kind of infatuated uh, with the ocean and it's just this beautiful thing going on. And uh, I got my, my wife next to me and my daughter and her friend and we're just having the time of our lives and it's summertime, right? And I'm just, I'm basking in this thing and what happened? I got all adult. And I I allowed all of these worries and uh, different things going on in my life to cloud my celebration of summer. And man, I just hated the feeling of it. And so while it's summer and we want to live like, you know, like like children almost in this kind of uh, this peaceful bliss of play and rest right now as the weather is beautiful. We are people who are living in a broken world. And it's very hard to let uh, your hair down, if you will, and enjoy life when you have battles. Jesus Christ said, in this world, you will have tribulation. And so with all my heart, and by the way, I have a violent war for joy. And the war is against my flesh. The dismal perception that I have of things. You ever notice that maybe, maybe, maybe you're a little bit better than me, but my first thoughts in the morning are negative thoughts. I am already deciding why the day's not going to work out. And so my battle for joy, my, my war with my own flesh is a war for joy. And by the way, we will not praise God if we do not enjoy God. Joy is at the center of our Christian experience. So my aim is to go through this at its ultimate height, my, my battle for joy, and just come here. And, and these aren't even scripted sermons. This is my weekly experience that I'm just dumping on you. And so I pray that my own journey for joy this summer would spread in a passion throughout this congregation, and you would feel the, the, the overflow 
into your own life. So my aim is to give us a working answer for these struggles. And I am a firm believer that uh, until we have working answers to counter the struggles in life, we cannot find joy in life. So through the Psalms, we've called it God's music. Through the Psalms, we want answers to our struggles so we can relax and trust that we're dealing with our struggles correctly and enjoy this life. Music, that's what the Psalms are. They're music. They're they're, they're poems. How many of you guys like poetry? I'm gaining this love for poetry. Uh, How many of you guys love music? Everybody loves music. Uh, How many of you love country music? Okay, we're praying for you. Hey, there's no country music in the Psalms. Everything but country music. All right, no, I'm kidding. I'm I'm kidding about that. I just lost everyone right there. That was not good. Uh, All right, here we go. Let's start over. Why do we love music? This is is probably going to fly right by you. This has been a a thought of mine. I think we need to get this to Berkeley and get some papers written on this. I think this is a fantastic thought right here. Why do we love music? Um, Isn't it because songs speak into our stories? Isn't that why we love music? Um, How many of you guys have a, a certain song or an album to go with every season of life? Like some of them you've been listening to for like 20 years. I heard a Bon Jovi song in Bed Bath and Beyond. I had a, an allergy headache. It was like the worst experience of my life. I hear Bon Jovi come on in this kind of setting with all these smells hitting me and everything else. And I thought, that's a song I don't want to hear over and over. But nonetheless, my brothers used to listen to Bon Jovi constantly, so it's stuck in my head. Why do songs get stuck in our head? Why do we need music? Why do we love music? Here's why. Because we're narrative people. Songs tell a story. We love movies because movies tell a story. But songs in particular tell stories that resonate with our own journeys. And here's the biggest part about music. Songs tell us how to respond to situations, don't they? Like if you're struggling in a relationship, like Adele just sings to you and you're like, yes, yes. Tell it. That's right. You know, I don't need him anymore. And, you know, you're singing the old shares. I don't need him anymore. You know, and all this stuff or, or whatever it may be. Or, you know, if you're really struggling, you got that one song and you put it on and it's like, yeah, it's like, it's like they understand me. And then they're actually giving me working answers. The problem is she doesn't give very good working answers. And most songs don't. We heard an old like 60s or 70s song in the grocery store. Music's like my thing right now. Uh, uh, an old 60s or 70s song, and I forget what it is. Some of you guys are going to holler it out in just a minute. But it went like this. Um, there's so many people to please that I can't please them. I might as well please myself. <laughs> like great philosophy. Like there's so many people out there that I got to, you know, try to, try to bless. I might as well just forget them and bless myself. So songs resonate with us because we, we enter stories They give us working answers, but the problem with most songs is the working answers aren't real good. But do you know what I read? I had too much time on my hands this week. So I started reading on kind of the cognitive effects of music, and and this won't bore you, and this is why we got to get this to Berkeley right here. I started reading some articles by psychologists and sociologists and so forth, and I started trying to read up on why we, we love music so much. And here's what I found out. Check this out. Do you know that when you feel the message of a song, the brain releases dopamine? Does everyone know what dopamine is? 
That's, that's what the body, um, uh, that's, that's the, the chemical that's released in the brain. Of, it's a pleasure chemical. And that's what kind of wraps around addiction. Like drugs, if you've been addicted to drugs, everything's built around pleasure. All right? You're suffering. You get high. Dopamine is released. It brings you to this amazing high. And then you're off the high. And then you go through a, a hard time. And the brain goes like this. We know how to feel good. Let's get back there. And then we go back to, you know, sex or drugs or whatever it may be. We do it again. Dopamine is re-released in our minds. We feel good again. And so what happens is you start creating a habit. Every time you see something that's dark or hard or scary, your brain goes, we can feel good if we just go back to that. Well, what's a trip is music does that to you. So if you're sad... Check this out. I mean, this is just so crazy. If you're sad and you have listened to a song that gave you some type of working answer and kind of uh, uh, wove into your own experience and you're like, man, that's exactly why I'm out of Dell. That's it right there. And then you kind of leave out of that and, and everything gets better. If you go into another broken relationship and it starts falling apart, your brain is going, go listen to that again. It felt good. Music is addicting. That's why some of you have listened to the same song 30 times. Like I buy an album and like it drives my family crazy. It's like repeat. That song is touching my heart. That's where I'm at. It's giving me a working answer. It's creating pleasure because it's giving me a working answer. And now my mind is releasing a pleasure chemical. I am becoming addicted to the song. And that's why when you leave that situation, you don't need the song anymore. Now you say, what does that have to do with Jesus Christ? Good, good question. But God's songs give real answers to life. And what if these songs could speak into our situation and give us real working answers that were truly filled with pleasure and they would awaken the emotions of the heart and they would release dopamine and they would create new habits that really work. What if we could do this with God's word? I sat in a hospital with my wife in a really hard week this week and there was a reaction from a habit of us pumping this book into our mind and finding pleasure after pleasure after pleasure in the precious words of God sung to us through the Holy Spirit that here we are sitting in this most bleak of situations and my wife turns to me and says, John, God says... And this pleasure wells up inside of us. And it was the very thing that sustained us and got us through this thing. Working true, deeply pleasurable answers from God's word. We are addicted to God's songs. So one of the songs in the Psalms that I want you to learn. One of the subjects... In this album of God's, 150 songs, is a psalm about dealing with our failures. Our failures. How many of you guys are weighed down by failure? I mean, just think about that. How, and, and you don't even have to raise your hand because this is a heavy question right here. And I'm going to give you a good working answer on how to deal with failure. How many of you guys know there is a failure that you cannot escape from your past and it is shaping you? Just think about that. 
And the problem with failing is that it is a part of our human story. It is a chapter in the book of life that you will never tear out. You, you are going to fail. I am going to fail. And the problem with failing is that we don't, how to, we don't know how to deal with it the way we need to. We don't know how to get, get free from it. We don't know how to escape it or deal with it. And failure then produces guilt, doesn't it? And when a human being lives in guilt, guilt begins to shape the human heart. Now, I want to be careful here because I'm certainly not a psychologist, but there are people who suffer from anxiety. I, I mean, we all do, right? There are some people who suffer for, from anger problems. And again, I'm going to be careful here. Do you know that much of that is being driven from failure and guilt? Much of our fear, much of our anxiety is actually just a surface product of a deeper problem of never dealing with failure correctly. And for years, it's just amazing, for years, guys, educators, therapists, and certainly talk show hosts have been working to get rid of guilt from failing. And what's a trip is nobody seems to know what to do with failure. (laughs) We all know we need to get it off of us. It's weighing us down. We can feel it. I remember the last time we were in Cambodia, I wanted to be Mr. Missionary, and I am not. And so I packed everybody had their rolling suitcases, you know, and I had this huge backpack, like an REI backpack. I was a Sherpa, you know. And uh, after a while, I thought, this is so stupid. All these, you know, my team's just rolling these suitcases through the airport, and I'm like Mr. Sherpa over here with this backpack, but I sure felt cool. After a while, though, I was so sick and tired of carrying the weight, it started showing on me. My wife could kind of see it, like, oh, here he goes. He's going angry. You know, and I'm thinking, oh, this is so stupid, and the, the weight got to be too much. I was tired of carrying the thing, and I remember finally getting, getting to the gate and literally, like, just tipping over, like, poof. Pulling my arms out of that thing and just laying on the ground and then finally getting up. It felt so good. I felt so free to finally be free of that weight that was burdening me so bad. And that's exactly how guilt is. But some of us have been carrying things for years, maybe decades. And the beauty is we don't have to do it. So what we're going to find in the ancient song in Psalm 51, is we are going to be able to find a process, and this should be so hopeful for some of you, we are going to learn the process that a man used to not only begin healing from his radical failure and his awful guilt, but he actually, check this out, this is how good God is, but he actually used it to become a better human being. Now, I want you to think about where you're at. Maybe, maybe you're, you're full of regret, or maybe you're wrestling with something, or maybe it was with the way you raised a kid, uh, whatever it is, whatever it is. I want you to think, is there a way that I could not only let go of that moment of failure, but I could actually use it for my own good to become an, 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 a better human being than I've ever been in my life? That is pretty powerful right there. You want to go there? Okay, three points. Let's go through them. Three points. 
And again, Psalm 51, this is our guy, David. And boy, if David did anything, David failed. So I'm going to show you, first of all, the failure. What happened to our guy, David? Now, I want you to realize, first and foremost, and this should encourage you. The scripture says that David was a a man after what? And yet, he fell this bad. Now, that tells us that the best of us, or as C.H. Spurgeon said, the best of people are people at best. So I just want you to look at the heading in Psalm 51. I'm not sure what your Bible says. But in my Bible, in Psalm 51, here's what it says. To the choir master, a psalm of David. So he wrote this for um, the congregation to sing. Let's talk about transparency. He writes a psalm of David. Now watch this. When Nathan the prophet went to him after he had gone into Bathsheba. That's not a city. Who's Bathsheba and what did David do? I want you to become David for a minute. I want you to to get this in your mind's eye. I want you to see the setting. I want you to feel David. We, We don't need to read the Bible. We need to feel the Bible. He's the king. He's the king of Israel. Um, he's good looking. He's gifted. He can kill things and sing. Who does that? Like if you're good at something, David is better. He's just better than you. This guy's amazing. He's got the kingdom. He's got the looks. Uh, he, he had a small problem with women. He's got wealth. He's got uh, prosperity. Everybody loves him. And so the sun rises. Imagine it. He's conquered everything around him. He sends out his army to war. They're gone. They're fighting for him. And um, maybe he's getting complacent. Maybe he's getting soft. I don't know. But um, if you picture some of these houses towards Daly City with flat roofs on them, I want you to picture that on a massive scale as he, he probably walks up a nice stairwell, probably by himself, And uh, the sun is rising. It's early in the morning. The desert heat is coming on him. There is a massive, massive city before him. And he climbs up those stairs and goes to that flattened roof. And maybe his prayer life has gotten a little dry because he's got so much going for him. Maybe he doesn't feel like he needs God at the level he used to need God. But he walks around, potentially. Maybe he walks around that flat roof for a while. And and he looks over that city and maybe even thanks God. I don't know, but... uh, Something's going wrong in David's heart. And maybe he looks over the edge of his house and maybe he's seen it before. You know, sin has a way of of, of coming at us drop by drop by drop by drop. So maybe he's done this before. Maybe he even timed it right where he he comes out to the roof and he looks over because he knows what he's going to see. And he sees a a woman and it was customary to, to bathe on a roof, but certainly not without covering. And, and I don't know what's going on with this lady, but she has no covering and she's bathing and she's nude. And David looks a little too long. And maybe D- David takes a walk back and shakes it off. You know how it is. You know how it is. And you shake it off and you say, no, that's not good. And the adrenaline goes and you look back 
And then before he knows it, his mind is racing. Emotion takes over. Logic is out the window. Rational thinking is drawn. Emotions cranking. He justifies it in his mind. You know, a little James 1 action going on. He's justifying this in his mind. And he goes down and he tells his servants, I want that lady. I want that lady. Get here quick. Cover her head. No one knows about this. You know the room to bring her. And he sleeps with this woman. And he gets her pregnant. This is a king. And then he finds out she's married and she's married to an amazing, amazing man. And now David doesn't know what to do. You ever been there on a many, many level? Maybe not this, but a many level? And you start, you start really racing in your mind. How do I get out of this thing? How do I deal with this thing? And knots are in the stomach. And David wakes up and, it, and she's not so beautiful anymore. And he's starting to realize what he's done. And so take her back home. Take, nobody speaks about this. I, I don't want to deal with her. We're going to deal with this thing. And so he, he conjures up this plan that if I can just get her husband Uriah, if he, can, if he can get here, but he's fighting a war. He's fighting my war for me. If we can just get Uriah here, and if Uriah could sleep with his wife, and maybe everyone would think that Uriah got her pregnant. So he does just that and Uriah won't go home. He won't go home and live in in pleasure while his friends are fighting on the battlefield. This guy's got more character than David. And so he sleeps basically on the streets. And David's furious at him. He's not even thinking about God at this point. He's just trying to dissolve the sin. Now identity and value and all these things are, are crashing into his mind. I can't let people find out about this sin and so he, he comes up with a plan of, well, let's just send him back. You know, you can panic to the point that you say, I don't care what happens to people. I got to get this sin out of here. And he, he, tells, he tells his soldiers, he tells Joab, his general, get Uriah, send him back to the war, put him on the front lines. And when you charge, make sure your guys pull back and Uriah's killed. Because then maybe I can take his wife by the letter of the law. Imagine what it was like when David sent that off and waited for news. Not making eye contact with people. Nervous, scared. And finally, this man is killed on the front lines of war. That is failure. The Bible is so real, it does not veil its heroes. It tells of the human heart. How would David deal with this deepest of failures? How do we deal with our failures? Well, whatever you do with your failure, it is doing something back to you. Whatever you decide, and we all, there's no neutrality in this. We all deal with our failure in some capacity. However you deal with the failure, it's immediately doing something back to you. So, 2 Samuel 11, verse 14. Here we go. In the morning, David wrote a letter to Joab, that's his general, and sent it by hand, the hand of Uriah. He even puts the death letter in the hands of this man. 
In the letter he wrote, set Uriah in the forefront of the hardest fighting and then draw back from him that he may be struck down and die. And as Joab was besieging the city, as they were attacking a city, he assigned Uriah to the place where he knew there would be valiant enemies, men. And the men of the city came out and fought with Joab. And some of the servants of David among the the people fell. Uriah the Hittite also died. So David decides, I'm going to deal with this in the most corrupt of ways. I'm going to hide this thing of hiding these things. But David, you don't understand. You don't deal with failure that way. I mean, I I yell at the Bible, David, don't. Because the way you dealt with that failure It is directly doing something back to you, David. You're not at peace, David. You'll never be at peace. You're going to walk around and every time you hear of Uriah's family, every time you look at Bathsheba, it's going to bring all the memories back. You'll never be able to move past your past until your past is at peace. And guys, we've all done it. We can try to bury our failures, but you will never be able to live past your failures. It will control you. It will become your hidden identity. It will be the lens that you look through. It will be the way that you look at yourself. You are no longer a person. You are that act. And I certainly did this before I was a Christian, but some even tried to find an environment like San Francisco, or a belief system that doesn't define our failure as wrong anymore. I heard a testimony of an amazing guy who I love to death in this church. I will not tell you who he is because I want him to tell his testimony. We were hanging out yesterday and he told this testimony right here. He came to San Francisco so his wrongs would no longer be wrongs. But you can't escape it in the heart. And that should tell us that there is some type of morality built into us. This should, this should tell us this is all going beyond us and connecting us to a God. Otherwise, if we were just creatures, we would be able to shake this stuff off. I mean, animals don't worry about failure. But what's in man, what's in woman that says, I can't escape this feeling of my failure. I have guilt. I have remorse. That's tying you to a moral God. David's in a bad place. Number two, the confession. What is he going to do about it? And this is, this is the beautiful poetry of the story. What is David going to do about it? Look at the confession. And here's what I want you to remember. David hid this secret for over a year. Can you imagine that? He finally, he finally, after wrestling with this over and over and having someone finally confront him about it, he finally comes to the place. Maybe he takes a a, a horseback ride out into a hidden home in the countryside and he gets alone and he tells only a few select people, don't tell anybody where I'm going. And he finally comes to the place where he's so tired and exhausted that he would rather deal with this than hide any longer. And he finally sits down and he pours out this song and he settles things. It's like a working journal, Psalm 51. And here's what David realizes. He realizes two things. God in his love won't leave David alone. Do you know that? God is the God of the conscience. He's going to keep pressing the conscience. 
He's not going to let us forget about failure. Now, he's not rubbing it in our face either. In his love, he won't leave David alone. Look at Psalm 51. Look at verse 3. David finally comes to the place where his conscience is like an alarm. It's just going off and going off and going off. And by the way, you haven't dealt with an issue until the conscience is quiet. So he says in verse 3, he finally comes to this place. For I know my transgressions. He's owning it. And my sin is ever before me. He's tired of replaying the act like a song on repeat. Verse 4, against you, you only have, have I sinned. And done what is evil in your sight, so that you may be justified in your words. I'm not going to blame you, God. This is my thing. Verse 5, behold, I was brought forth in iniquity, and in sin did my mother conceive me. He finally accepts that this is a part of his humanity. He is a broken man, and he has sins. Man, it's so easy to play Adam and Eve. It's so easy to hide from God when God is saying, I'm not leaving you alone, so you'll run to me, run to me. Let's deal with this. Verse 11. Cast me not away from your presence and take not your Holy Spirit from me. That verse has been tweaked for years. Friend, you can't lose the Holy Spirit if you're a Christian. He is a king. And the king was anointed in the Old Testament by the Holy Spirit. And he's terrified that God will take the power of the Holy Spirit away from him as the king over Israel. He's basically terrified that God is going to take his position away. Praise the Lord that he won't leave us alone. And then too, it comes to him. He finally realizes that the conviction of his conscience is a gift of grace. The reason God won't leave him alone is actually a gift of grace. David, I love you too much to leave you in that state. We can deal with this. Psalm 51 Verse 8, let me hear joy and gladness. He knows what will happen if he deals with it with a loving God. God will restore him to joy and gladness. Let the bones that you have broken rejoice. He says, God, I know this is from you. I know you're the one pressing me. I know you are the hound of heaven hunting me down. But it's all out of love. Let the bones that you have broken rejoice. Rejoice. In other words, he says, I know the reason I feel this weight is because you want me to rejoice by dealing with this problem. Conviction is designed to lead us back to joy. And if you have failed, brother or sister, if you have failed and failed and failed, you remember that conviction that's on you that God will not let up when you feel like your bones are broken. You ever had pain that feels like it's somewhere in your bones? Conviction? That is the grace of God saying, come to my love. And oddly enough, it's through this weird thing called confession that the healing begins. It is when David finally says, I have got to confess my failures to Almighty God. And of course, in our society, to confess is often considered antiquated, weak, even corrosive to our self-esteem. But man, the Bible is way more real and honest than that. And now David finally moves his failure into the realm of honesty. He owns the thing. He confesses the thing to God. And that is the first step to healing from your failures. 
Psalm 51, 1 to 5. I, 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 I have done this. Isn't that the antithesis of Adam and Eve? Like she did it. And then she's like, you did it, God. You made the whole thing. David, David understands. He says, I did it. And he says, I did it because I am a human and I am broken and this world is hard. That's just such a sweet thing to finally come uh, into. Uh, verse 5, behold, I was brought forth in iniquity. You know, I was born broken. And in sin did my mother conceive me. Things, things don't work right in here from, from cradle to the grave. I think the quicker we can just say, ah, we're going to mess up in this life. The quicker we can find healing. And so he confesses that he did it. And he confesses that he's broken. And this begins the healing process. Now, now listen carefully here, you guys. This begins the healing process because once you admit that you have failed to God, only then can a great Savior show up and make something new out of it. Jesus Christ said, those who are well have no need of a physician. I'm not playing like I'm well. If I failed and I've never dealt with it, I'm done pretending I'm well. He says, those who are well have no need of a physician, but those who are sick. In other words, we tie the Lord's hand if we won't come to grips with this thing and say, Lord, I have failed. That is the moment that he can swoop in and say, yes, I am glorified in your weakness. Now watch what I do. But if I refuse to confess it to the Lord Jesus Christ, Jesus Christ cannot heal. See, I, don't, I confess my sins all day. I'm a mess. But I don't confess my sins to stay saved. I confess my sins so God will heal my conscience. God does not want us trying to earn our way back to him when we fail. God wants us embracing the grace that's already been provided in Christ. And isn't that just like us? What we do is we begin to pretend we've got it together. And, and uh, we, I, here's what I do. I, I have this little scoreboard with God. I say, man, I failed God. I'm not going to talk to him because I'm ashamed of God as if he doesn't know everything anyway. And I say, well, if I do enough good, then we'll be good. And he's looking down like, John, why do you think Jesus died? He didn't die so you can be good enough. He died because he alone was good enough. Now, would you in faith begin to work through my grace? Will you accept my love, my forgiveness? And look at Psalm 51.1. This is what David said. This is the key right here. He doesn't lean on his own good works. Maybe I can fix this thing between me and God, uh, this horrendous thing, by just being a little better or cleaning this thing up or putting together a good six months. He says, have mercy on me, O God. Just please have mercy on me. And now look what he does. According to your steadfast, that's that word, the chesed of God, that hunting, unending, crazy love of God. God, tell me it's okay and remind me that your love is never ending. And my foolish failure can never break your love down. He says, according to your abundant mercy, blot out this transgression. He doesn't try to clean it up. He comes broken and flings it at God and says, I'm trusting that you love me right now.
God's steadfast love is his hope. Psalm 51, 16 and 17. Be not afraid when a man be... Uh, that's Psalm 49. Psalm 51, verse 16 and 17. He says, for you will not delight in sacrifice or I would give it. This isn't about me coming and doing a ritual to get right with you. For you will not be pleased with a burnt offering. You can't earn back love. You can't earn earn back something that is freely given. He says in verse 17, the sacrifices of God are a broken spirit. That's all God wants. It's just a confession. Then he'll start healing. A broken and contrite heart. Oh God, you will not despise that. But you will despise me trying to clean it up and not dealing with it. And by confessing his failure to God... And then confessing God's strong love to himself. He begins to convince himself of God's greater grace. See, here's how confession works. When we fail, we need to confess the failure to God. And then we need to confess God's strong love to us. We need to preach God's stronger love to us. And that is when the Holy Spirit will begin to convince us that God's grace is truly covering the failure. Confession, in other words, is speaking truths to God and yourself until guilt fades. You get that? You guys good? And once you realize that the worst of your acts has not damaged God's love and acceptance of you, then you can begin to look at the failure in a whole new way. You're free of the guilt. The failure is losing its power, and now the failure actually becomes a whole other thing. Psalm 51.10, Create in me a clean heart, O God, and renew a right spirit within me. God, I want to look at this differently. I want to look at what I did differently. Renew my mind. Take the guilt away so it's no longer some bludgeoning failure on my conscience. Take that guilt away by me preaching your grace to myself. And now let's do something entirely different with what I did. Number three, the transformation. Watch his failure transform. This is an amazing God who could take something that vile and evil and turn it into something that could change this man into a better man. That's an invincible God. And this is how amazing God is. God will will soak your sin in grace until you are free of the guilt, and then he will use the sin to make you a better human being. Singed by the fire of hell, yet soaked by the blood of Jesus. Psalm 51, 6. Behold, you delight in truth in the inward part, and you teach me wisdom in the secret heart. God, grab a hold of that dark pocket of hidden failure in my heart, saturate it, and soak it in your grace until I am convinced the guilt is done, and then teach me from it how to use it to grow into a better human. He knows that God wants him to wants to teach him. He, he's starting to realize that the guilt is gone and now God wants to use the failure to teach him from the most hidden parts of his heart that only God knows about. See, if the failure loses its guilt, it can now be made to teach. 
If grace covers the sin, if grace covers the guilt, and you convince yourself that 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 act is done at Calvary, now that failure can be forced by God to become a tool to teach you to be a better human being. Psalm 51, verse 12. Restore to me the joy of your salvation and uphold me with a willing spirit. Then I will no longer use Bathsheba's of the world the way I did. But I will look at human beings as not objects to fulfill my satisfaction, but I will look at them and love them correctly through your lens. Then I will teach transgressors your ways and sinners will return to you. Teach me how to look at humans through this wound, this failure of mine. I know it's covered. I know the guilt is over. Now help me to see Bathsheba as a broken woman who I should have been there for while her husband was out to war. Just teach me, God. Teach me to hate my sin. Teach me how to treat people through this. There is a beautiful lesson in every failure that can change your life if you get rid of the guilt through the grace of God. And so he took his great failure like a backpack full of stone, weighing him down. And through the grace of God and him accepting it and the guilt flowing out of him, he laid it down and he opened that heavy backpack filled with stone, no longer carrying it, and he turned it into a sculpture of what he could be if he could learn from it. Proverbs twenty four sixteen: a righteous man falls seven times and gets up again. The number seven is used there because it's the number for completion in the Bible. In other words, it's our failures that complete us if we soak it in the grace of God and learn from it. So I say this in closing. Your God is invincible. And our failures, yeah, oh yeah, our failures show us what we really are. We, are. we are great sinners. But that's not what Jesus wants us to focus on. He wants us to look at the cross and allow our failures to show us what Jesus is. And that is a great, great restorer of souls. So here's what I want to do. I want us to, to bow our heads in a moment of prayer. And I want you to listen to my voice just for a few minutes here. And I want you to begin to take this journey with your heads bowed and your eyes closed. And I'm very aware that many of you are are wrestling with, with real issues. And you feel that you have sin, been singed by the fire of hell. You, you feel like you have fallen so far. And maybe you've carried it for a long time. I would pray that you would confess it. And that you would own it to God Almighty right now. But then you would soak it in the blood of Jesus. And you would let God sing His song to you. That your sins are gone, forgiven, and under the blood. He has taken the power away if you will accept his grace to cover it. And that you would allow that failure to become something new.
hard and uncomfortable, but no longer guilt. A lesson. What if God is so good that he would take the worst of our failures in this room, soak them in his forgiveness, twist them and turn them and reshape them to teach us, his children, how to be more like him? That is what your God wants you to do. Let your failure turn to that. That you can go out of this place and truly feel the sun again. Enjoy this summer again. God has put away your sin if you are in Christ. Put it away yourself. Breathe again. And if you're here and you're not a Christian, this is our God. He is this good. And I pray you'd have the boldness to confess that you have rejected him and you want to turn from it. And you want his forgiveness and his unending love in your life. Uh, would you, where you sit in the quietness of your own heart, would you, the best way you know how, confess that you have sinned and ask for his forgiveness to cover it all? And he will begin you on a new journey. I pray you do that this morning. And if you're a Christian friend, be glad. We're about to sing this last song. Be so glad. The worst of failures are soaked in the blood of Jesus. Let it go. Let it cleanse your conscience. He wants to teach you through it. Be thrilled that that is your good, good father this morning. And begin the journey. Let's just pray for a few seconds longer.